to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade, and thank you so much for listening. It means the planet Earth to me. Today's case is about Anthony Sowell, also known as the Cleveland Strangler, who murdered 11 women in two years. So let's get started. Anthony Sowell was born on August 19, 1959 in Ohio. He was one of seven children to his mother, Claudia Garrison. One of his sisters was a single mother to her seven children, but she passed away from a chronic illness. So all seven of her children had to move into Anthony's home, making that 13 children in the house. So it was pretty crowded, to say the least. According to Anthony's niece, Leona, Claudia, which is Anthony's mom, did physically abuse the seven kids while her own children watched from an adjacent room. The way she treated the seven kids was pretty horrible. You know, she never abused her own kids. Not that abusing your kids is okay, but she, you know, abused other people's kids. I don't really exactly know the reason why. Leona described in one incident that Claudia forced her to strip naked in front of other, in front of like the other children and then whipped her with electrical cords until she bled. Anthony and his mother didn't really have a strong relationship. It was more strained, not like the typical mother-son relationship. Then again, she's raising 13 children, so of course it's going to be hard to, you know, have a strong relationship with one of the kids. His sister describes Anthony as a very mean and aggressive child, and she got the sense that even though their mom was taking care of 13 kids like she loved those kids but she got the sense that anthony just didn't love his mother anthony then began raping his niece almost every day for two years starting when she was 10 years old and unfortunately the other males in the house would participate in the same thing on january 24th 1978 when anthony was 19 years old he joined the united states marine corps He served in North Carolina, then overseas in Japan, and in total spent seven years in the military. He had a very good career in the military. You know, he never received an honorable discharge or anything, never got in trouble. And he even received a good conduct medal, a sea service deployment ribbon, a certificate of accommodation, and two letters of appreciation. And he was discharged on January 18th, 1985. In 1989, a woman who was three months pregnant goes to Anthony's home voluntarily. She was a sex worker, and it was supposed to be normal, just like any other time she goes to someone's house. You know, she would do what she had to do and then leave. But when she tried to leave, he refuses to let her go. He bounds her feet and hands with zip ties and a belt and then gags her with a rag. He begins choking her and tells her to say a prayer He's going to feed her and then kill her. Like, you might as well kill me at this point because I don't know how you expect me to eat after you just told me you're going to kill me. I don't, I don't understand these people. 
So Anthony decides to take a nap, and once he falls asleep, the woman is able to escape onto the roof of the house from a window and signal neighbors to call the police. She told the police, quote, He choked me real hard because my body started tingling. I thought I was going to die. End quote. Anthony was charged with kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape. He pled guilty to the attempted rape charge and served 15 years in prison until he was released in 2005. Once he is released, he begins working in a factory until 2007 when he was fired and then filed for unemployment. And then he begins collecting unemployment benefits and his neighbor said that he did like a little side business of just selling scrap metal. So that's that's what he was doing in his time. The corner store owner started to realize that Anthony had changed. You know, he was acting differently than he used to. He would twitch a lot and he became more withdrawal and he wondered what could have happened to him. You know, like, was it a death? Was it the military? What possibly could have happened to Anthony for him to just change drastically? Until one day he saw Anthony buying crack. So that pretty much answered his question he was like oh you know i wonder what happened to anthony and then he's like oh yeah he's on crack that's what kind of changed him that's why he's acting the way he is the neighborhood starts to notice this foul smell and it wasn't like a sewer egg smell you know if you i don't know if anyone has ever smelled like a sewer before but it wasn't like a sewer egg smell or like a poop smell it was just a foul smell um no one knew exactly where the smell was coming from, but it kind of lingered around Anthony's house, but no one was going to say, Anthony's house stinks. You know, no one was going to say that. Lori Fraser, who was the niece of the Cleveland mayor, Frank Jackson, began dating Anthony shortly after he was released from prison and she was living with him. She claims that there was a strong stench of decaying bodies, and when she asked Anthony about the smell, he told her that the smell was coming from Ray's sausage shop that was next door to Anthony. Now, I don't know what a dead body smells like. I hope I never smell one. But I think it's the type of smell that you can't describe to someone until they smell it. And then you'll be like, yeah, that that's a dead body. That That's just what I think. So there is a little bit of confusion as to when Lori moved out from Anthony's house. In an interview, she said she left in 2007, but in a published article, she said she was living there until 2008. So it's between 2007 to 2008, but she does eventually move out. The smell got so bad that the neighbors started complaining to the health department. They were like, this smell is getting out of hand. That's not a sausage smell. It is not from the sausage shop. It's not a poop smell. It's not an egg smell. Like, my nostrils are on fire because of how bad this smell is. So the health department goes out and they do an inspection on the sausage shop. And they're like, yeah, there is no way that the smell is from this shop. Because the place is clean. It just, once you go in, the odor stops. It smells like, I don't know, it smells really, really good for a sausage shop. So they're like... We don't know what to tell you, but the smell isn't from the shop. It's from somewhere else. While the whole smell situation is going on, Anthony starts going on dating profiles. He states in his profile that he's looking, that he's a master looking for a submissive partner to train. 
but he just uses it as a trap to lure women. And in September 2009, Anthony invites Latondra Billups to his house for a drink. They weren't complete strangers. They had always seen each other around the neighborhood, so it wasn't out of the ordinary for them to have drinks or to think something was going to happen. She had drinks with Anthony before, so it was just like any other time that they drunk together. It was a good time. They would socialize. Nothing out of the ordinary. When they would hang out, they would go to the third floor of the house. Whenever Anthony had people come over, that's where he would take them, to the third floor. But this time, he took her to the second floor. Latondra asks why they were going to the second floor instead of the third floor, and he told her that the third floor was dirty and didn't want to entertain guests in a messy place. When she goes into the room, she gets a bad vibe. As soon as she walks in, something feels weird. She was like, ah, something, something's not right. There is an extension cord and a blanket on the floor. And other than that, the room is empty. She didn't think anything of it because like I mentioned, she has been over to his house before to have drinks, but she brushes it off. They do crack together and they do a little bit of flirting. Anthony goes and gets another chair and brings it back and tells her to turn around and he grabs her by the back of the neck. And she's just like, um, what the hell? So she spins around and pushes him, telling him, don't do that. Don't grab my neck like that. No, that's not how it works. He then punches her in the face and Anthony forces her down onto her stomach, wraps the extension cord around her neck and then chokes her. She passes out and wakes up sometime later and sees Anthony sitting in a chair. But Anthony's kind of taken back because she's alive. He thought he killed her. He tells her that he's going to kill her and then kill himself because he knows that she's going to go to the police and tell on him and that he's going to go back to jail. And I don't really understand how people want to commit crimes and just not go to jail. It doesn't make sense. That's the reason jails are built. Unless there's some other reason. I don't know. But these people's logic, it never makes sense. She convinces him that she's not going to go to the police. She's not going to tell on him. She'll just never come back again. You know, he tries to justify what he did, even though you can't justify that. You know, and he says, you know, I'm going through a lot right now. I'm just... I just need a break and she tries to understand and she's like yeah I understand it's totally it's fine you know this this won't happen again I won't tell anyone and she says that she forgives him and he allows her to leave she goes straight to the police and tells them what happened and they tell her you know we'll get back to you that type of thing three weeks go by before they would even call her back to update her on what she reported then another week goes by on October 29th, 2009. Police go to arrest him, and Anthony's not there. They end up finding two bodies that were buried in a shallow grave in the basement. Now they're just like, this is a completely different situation that we're dealing with. They went to arrest Anthony for what he did to Latondra, but now they're finding bodies. So... They start searching the entire house, where they find four other women in the third floor of the home in crawl spaces. 
After digging in the backyard, they find three more bodies and partial remains of a fourth body. Police also find a bucket in the house, and inside the bucket, they find a human skull, and this brings the body count to 11. Most of the victims were killed by manual strangulation, and other victims were gagged and had ligature marks on their bodies. On November 5th, 2009, two of the 11 women were identified. The first one was Tanya Carmichael, a 53-year-old African-American woman who had disappeared more than a year earlier. Her mother had reported her missing in December 2008. She was found buried in the backyard. She had appeared to be strangled and was identified through DNA evidence. The second victim was identified as Talasio Fortson, a 31-year-old who disappeared five months earlier. Although she had been missing since June, her mother didn't report her missing until it came on the news about the bodies found in Anthony Sowell's home. On November 8, 2009, three more bodies were identified. Crystal Dozier, a 38-year-old who went missing in May 2007, the day after Mother's Day. She was a mother to her seven children, and she was a drug addict. Her son says their relationship was strained. She wasn't present in her kid's life as much as he wanted her to be. He would even have to look after his siblings, and because he was a kid raising his younger siblings, they didn't have money for food. All they had was a jar of peanut butter and they would get a scoop for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and that was all that they had. In the interview, he said that he meant to not call her on Mother's Day because he felt like she wasn't a good mother. She wasn't there for them and she never took care of them. That's the reason he didn't call her. She lived in the same neighborhood as Anthony and her family reported her missing, but the police didn't bother to investigate anything. The family had to do their own investigating by posting flyers around, asking have they seen her, and even calling hospitals to see if she checked herself in. Amy Hunter was a 47-year-old. She was a beautician and a mother of three. She didn't live in the area, but she visited frequently. Her family didn't report her missing until the news broke of the 11 bodies in the home. Michelle Mason was a 45-year-old who was last seen in October 2008. She did live in the neighborhood, and her family reported her missing right away. Police did a full investigation, but nothing turned up. Records of missing persons going back to Anthony in 2005 release from prison were searched and used DNA testing on the bodies found at the house. East Cleveland reopened several cold cases from the late 1980s. They had similar cases where the victims were strangled, and it was the same MO as Anthony. And they stopped around the time Anthony was arrested. Three more rape victims came forward and told their story as to what happened with Anthony, but all three victims never reported it at first because they thought they weren't going to be taken seriously enough because they were drug addicts. Police issued a $12,000 reward for anyone that had any information that would lead to his capture. So they all start a manhunt and two streets away, Anthony is at his sister's house and tells her that everything she is hearing and seeing on the news is true. Like, yes, 
I did those things. That is my house. I killed those 11 women. And then he just leaves. After two days, he's arrested, and he was 50 years old at the time, and he's held at a $5 million bond. His trial date was originally supposed to start on June 2nd, 2010, but was delayed about three different times. It was delayed to September 7th to give attorneys more time to prepare, then to February 14th, 2011, then to May 2nd, at the request of his attorneys, who needed more time to examine thousands of records and hours of surveillance video, which was shot from the property next door. And the trial officially began on June 6, 2011. One woman came forward and gave her account of the time she encountered Anthony. She's a sex worker standing outside the bank waiting for a customer, and Anthony walks up. He tells her that it's his birthday and no one told him happy birthday, so she tells him happy birthday. They start a little conversation and she wonders if it's a good idea to go with Anthony or to wait for the man she was originally waiting for. He seems like a friendly person, he's talking to people on the road and people are talking back, so it makes her comfortable that he's a good, friendly person. She says she got super uncomfortable once she went inside the house. She says that he walked her over to the stairs and she does notice this horrible smell right as soon as she enters the house. But when she got up the stairs, the smell really hit her. They go up the stairs and she asks if they are going to smoke and drink and he says yes and asks if she has a pipe and she hands the pipe to him. They drink and smoke and they just talk. When he suddenly punches her in the head, and tells her to take off all her clothes, and he spends the next two hours raping and beating her. She passes out, and he's sleeping as well. And when she wakes up the next morning, he wakes up, and she asks if she can go to the bathroom, and he lets her use the bathroom. Before she gets to the bathroom, in the adjacent room, she notices a body laying on a plastic sheet, and it's missing a hand. But she still goes to the bathroom, of course, freaking out that there's a dead body laying in the room. She comes out of the bathroom and pretends like she didn't see anything and acts normal in order for her to leave. She doesn't want to alarm him, of course. Anthony starts freaking out, saying that she's going to tell the police and that he's going to jail. But she tells him, no, it's okay. Um, no one is going to know. But he was talking about... Um, the things he did to her, and she says that it was much rougher than usual. And yes, she actually said rougher than usual in the in their testimony. Anthony walks her down to the front door, and he lets her leave. She calls the police, and they tell her to come down to the station to file a report. She felt like it wasn't a good idea, because just like the other three women that never reported it, she was a drug addict and a sex worker, and they wouldn't look into her case or wouldn't take her serious, so she never files a police report. Anthony is charged with 11 counts of aggravated murder, 74 counts of rape, kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but later changed it to not guilty. On July 22, 2011, he was convicted of all but two counts, including the murder of 11 women. 
On August 10th, the jury recommended the death penalty. On August 12th, the judge upheld the recommendation, and on September 14th, 2011, he was placed on death row. As he should. Electric chair! Do you guys know that that meme or TikTok? Yeah, electric chair. Period. Anyway, (laughs) in November of 2011, his lawyers filed a notice of appeal with the Supreme Court of Ohio. His original execution date was set for October 29, 2012, but in March 2012, a motion for stay of execution was filed and it was granted because there was an appeal that was pending. His new lawyers appealed to have his conviction and death sentence overturned with the three major points. One being he didn't receive a fair trial because of the media coverage. Quote, the media attention was overwhelming. Generating thousands of stories and local coverage was both frenzied and sustained, end quote. Two, the courtroom had been closed to the public, quote, during an evidentiary hearing and while the jury was picked, end quote. And three, he received lousy legal representation, quote, Sowell's trial attorneys should have had their client plead guilty to killing the women, then focus their efforts on preventing Sowell from getting the death penalty, end quote. In September 2014, the court asked both parties to take a look at the three major issues. On April 5, 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court heard arguments from Anthony's attorneys and the DA. Anthony's lawyers argued that his Sixth Amendment right was violated and it wasn't out of reason to ask that his death sentence be reduced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Life imprisonment was reasonable, but the death penalty wasn't in their case. They argued that the council made so many errors that they should be given a retrial and that the case should be brought back down to the little local county courthouse. His attorney says, quote, frankly, we blow it, end quote, to the Supreme Court. Like, they actually said, yeah, yeah, we totally blew it. We didn't know what we were doing. The state's argument was that Anthony never denied his guilt. Even though he pled not guilty, he never denied that he killed those women. They say that he was very much deserving of the death sentence. On December 8, 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected the appeal in full support of his conviction and death sentence. In May 2017, they made another attempt, but this time to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said, nope, nope, we don't want to hear it. Goodbye. In February 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court denied his request to reopen the appeal. And again in May 2020, the state of Ohio's 8th district appellant court denied his appeal. I got a headache seeing how many times he was trying. Like, there should be a certain amount of times that you should appeal. Because, honey, that was seven times that they tried. Seven times. And he was guilty. He killed and raped those women. So what are we appealing for? Like, if you're innocent, yeah, you have the right to appeal as many times as possible. But there's 11 bodies in this man's house. What are we What are we appealing for? Let me know. On January 21st, 2021, he contracted a unspecified illness where he was transferred to a end-of-life facility in Columbus and stayed there for 16 days. 
and on February 8th, 2021, Anthony Sowell died. Did he die from did he die from COVID? That's a great question. But the prison authorities says that his death was not related to COVID-19. They also demolished his house in December 2011 by city orders, which is great because I don't know the reason that the house would still be standing. So I do want to talk about the 11 women. They were Crystal Dozier, age 38, Tashana Culver, 33, LaShonda Long, 24, Tanya Carmichael, 53, Michelle Mason, 45, Kim Smith, 44, Nancy Combs, 44, Amy Hunter, 47, Janice Webb, 48, Talasio Fortson, 31, and Diane Turner, 48. The families of the victims were awarded $1.3 million for the way the police handled the missing person cases, which they did nothing about. There's also a documentary on YouTube called The Cleveland Strangler, the story of a brutal serial killer and his forgotten victims, and it's a pretty well done documentary. I think it's on Vice YouTube channel, so you can you can look that up. There was also a video. I couldn't find it anywhere, but the man said that Anthony is a hero of some sort because the people he killed were trash, and it broke my heart because no matter who you are what you do in your past or what you do in your life now you know your life still matters you know you're still a valuable person sex workers drug addicts are still people and just because of what they do doesn't make them a bad person some people just end up in different places in life doing different things and I hate this idea that society has constructed about sex workers and drug addicts, that they are nobodies, because they're very much people. People always praise killers for, as they like to call it, cleaning up the streets because they kill sex workers and addicts, and you might think, oh yeah, they deserve it because they did this to themselves, and I would never do such a thing, but... Just because you aren't a drug addict or because you've never done drugs or because you're not a sex worker, it doesn't make you any better of a person and it doesn't make them any less of a person. We are not above anyone and we're not better than anyone else because at the end of the day, we're all humans that take different paths and because we choose to do something different or fall somewhere else, that should never mean that our lives mean nothing. Um, These women are very much people and they had kids, they have parents, they have friends, they have cousins, they have sisters, and they mattered as well. So just because of what someone does in their life or where where they're at, no matter if they're a lawyer or if they're a sex worker, people's lives still matter. And I wish that society would stop that because they're very much people and police would look into more cases and actually solve and put time and effort into these cases, especially with women of color. Um, and because they don't, they don't at all. And it, it disgusts me so much that they, that they don't care, you know, but I'm not a police officer. I can only, I can only speak of what I wish I would do if I was a police officer, but these, these people are women as well, no matter the color of their skin or what they do in life, their their life still matters. And it's sad that 
there's so many cases out there like this that aren't solved or aren't being looked at because the women are people of color or because they're the highest member of society. No, it's absolutely ridiculous. But that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminalcuriositypod where you can see the pictures of the case behind the scenes or just to keep up with what's going on. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. You can also request any case that you may have through Instagram or Gmail that I will have in the description box below. And please be safe out there. Look out for another. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.